Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1. And as you're finding your way there, I, I do want to thank you, uh, let you know it's wonderful to be back with you this morning and to thank you for the opportunity to be away uh, last week and the privilege you all extend to me by being able to take those times every once in a while. I was with um, a couple of my favorite people doing some hiking um, last weekend, and, and we had uh, a wonderful worship service on the top of Old Rag. Some of you perhaps been up there. In fact, uh, we studied this text that we're going to uh, consider this morning. And so it was great and wonderful to see God's creation in light of the passage we'll look at this morning. I do want to thank my brother, Pastor Glenn, for faithfully bringing us God's word last week. And it's certainly wonderful as a pastor to be able to leave and know that God will be honored and his word proclaimed. So thank you, brother, for that. And with that, I, I hope you found your way to Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1. Please hear now the word of God. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by the families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Let us pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word in which we now come to consider. We do so because we believe that it is your word. We believe it is your revelation to us, how you speak to us, how you show us who you are. And so we come to it as we do uh, on a weekly basis with great joy and anticipation and reverence and awe. And ask the one true God to show himself to his people. We pray that you would do so by the faithful proclaiming of your word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he may give us a heart to delight in these truths. Draw us close to you, Father, that we may know you as our God and know of the great work that you do in our lives as you have done in the past, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
25 years ago, on this exact date, actually, September 29th, the Los Angeles Times ran an article entitled, The Forgotten Dutch Soldier Stands Lengthy Watch. You see, in September of 88, joint NATO forces were practicing maneuvers in West Germany. A Dutch soldier, a 19-year-old Johan Romers, was given the assignment of guarding a bridge over the Line River. Unfortunately for Romers, his unit forgot his assignment. In fact, they forgot him. And they returned to the Netherlands, leaving Private Romers at his post on the bridge. His unit left on Wednesday. There he remained. Thursday came around, and Private Romers was on the bridge. Friday, he was found at his post, faithfully guarding that bridge. Well, by this time, the villagers began to take notice. They offered him a place to stay during the night. He refused, for his orders were to guard that bridge. And so they began to bring him food and water, um, taking pity and compassion on him. They did so on Saturday and again on Sunday and again on Monday, where he continued to man that bridge as his orders declared. It was almost a week until the Dutch military police came with new orders releasing roamers from his post, and he returned home. Well, today I want to consider another man who is apparently forgotten. Though we'll see in a moment he is not forgotten. It perhaps seems so to him. Of course, I speak of our brother Noah, who there lives upon this ark, as we'll see, over a year without God speaking to him. As he obeys the orders that have been given to him, he will stay at his post, not for a day or a week or a month or even a half a year, but he will stay there for over a year until he is dismissed. And so we'll consider this great man, our brother, and I trust we'll be very encouraged by him this morning. But ultimately, my hope is not simply that we consider uh, this man Noah, but that we consider this man's God, that we would see the God to whom Noah obeys. In fact, as we see in in Genesis chapter 8, it's very much a picture of a new start to creation. It's a picture of renewal. And in doing so, it shows us how this God is going to relate to humanity after this judgment and this destruction of the flood. And so this morning, we we have the great privilege to consider the character of God and, and how he continues to relate to us. In fact, there are at least three things I'd like to point out to you from Genesis chapter 8. First of all, that God remembers his own. Second, God tests our faith. And third, God blesses worshipers. And so consider with me, first of all, that God remembers his own. We see in verse 1 of chapter 8, perhaps one of the great verses here in the book of Genesis, when we read, but God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Now, if you were to take the entire count of the flood, Genesis 7 all the way through Genesis chapter 8, really Genesis 8-1 is kind of the hinge verse of this account. From every, all the verses leading up to 8-1 is all about God's judgment. And everything after verse 1 is all about God's mercy. And there we have the center of this passage. And and we see, of course, as we considered last time we were in this book, that the flood has occurred in unimaginable scale. The entire world is covered with water. and, And there, like a cork upon a mighty ocean, floats Noah and his ark. And Scripture says to us, God remembered Noah. In fact, I think this is even more important in light of the previous verse. For you note chapter 7 and verse 24 says, And the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days, but God remembered Noah. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Floating in this massive ship with this menagerie of animals, not overnight, but, but night after night and week after week and And month after month in the darkness of this floating zoo. Can can you imagine the first, the 40 days of rain and finally it stops. The the rain ends and, and then all there is is silence. Perhaps the only sound is the animals aboard the ship and the, the water gently lapping against its side for weeks after weeks after weeks after weeks. I wonder what our brother would have thought. I wonder what he considered as he floated upon this boat with no, no escape plan. God never told him what happens after he floods. He just told him to get on the boat. The flood's coming. Perhaps he felt abandoned by God. Perhaps he wondered, does God remember me? 
Well, Scripture tells us that God remembered Noah. In fact, whenever the Scripture tells us that God remembers his people, it's always in the context of God is about to act upon his promises to that individual. And so, for instance, the Bible will tell us that God remembered Sodom, uh, remembered before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he remembered Abraham, and therefore he saved Lot. Or scripture will tell us that when Rachel, who was barren, wanted to bear children, the Bible says God remembered Rachel, and therefore she was able to have a child. Or when Israel was in bondage to Egypt, scripture tells us God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then began to work to redeem his people from their bondage and enslavement. And even the repentant thief on the cross said to Jesus on that day, what, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, this man is not asking Jesus to have fond thoughts of him as he, as he enjoys the kingdom of God. He's asking Jesus to act upon that memory of him. And so when scripture tells us that, that God remember Noah, we, we get ready for God to begin to act based upon that remembrance and the promises he had given to Noah. In fact, we saw in chapter 6 and verse 18 that God had entered a covenant with Noah. He had entered into a relationship with him, and God begins to, to act and to, to work based upon that. And so we see the action as we read on in verse 1. And, the bee, and all the beasts and the livestock that were in with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Now I want you to realize that I think what Genesis is doing here is it's, it's showing us a picture of, new, of a new creation. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. The Bible says the earth was formless and void and water was over, over the, over the earth, over the, um, the face of the earth and the spirit hovered over the deep, right? It was just this watery world when God began to form it and to, to fill it. And there the spirit was hovering over it. Well, the word spirit is the Hebrew word ruach and it can be translated as wind or breath. And so here in verse 1, we see that the spirit, if you will, or the wind of God was hovering over this watery world and God was about to recreate it. That God was about to work on this land. We see him do so in verse 2, and the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain of the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And so we see the Bible says the rain stopped, which would have been a good day, right, if you're on the boat. Praise the Lord. And there's no more rain after 40 days. And then we see the water begin to withdraw, which is, of course, a picture of the mercy of God. Now, many people ask, well, okay, Stephen, if the entire world is covered with water, if this is a global flood, where then does the water go? And so let me tell you with great confidence this morning, I have no idea. I'm not sure. I do know that this was a miraculous event. This is not a natural event. I I don't think it was mythical, as we established last time. It, It happened, but it was miraculous. Some have suggested, which I find perhaps plausible, that the earth back in this day was largely different than the earth that we have today. Um, in fact, you notice, but looking back in verse 2, you notice where the water is coming from. Don't think that the flood is simply just a long, hard rain. The, the source of the water is two places. Notice this. The fountains of the deep, which is below us, and the windows of heaven, which were, is above us, was closed. We saw that phrase in Genesis 7. I don't know if I pointed it out. But the water had two sources, from above and from below. And the picture, perhaps, is of this cataclysmic primeval event, which uh, not only is the world flooded, but the world is, is largely um, uh, altered. In fact, uh, perhaps this is what the psalmist had in mind in Psalm 104. This is interesting to me. He says, you covered the earth with the deep as with a garment. Right? So he's speaking of the flood. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled at the sound of your thunder. They took flight. Well, where then did they go? Well, he doesn't exactly tell us, but he does say next, the mountains rose and the valleys sank to the place that you had appointed them. So interesting, perhaps, that they, the, the oceans drop and the mountains rose at this great cataclysmic flooding event. But nevertheless, we see that God sends the water away. And finally, the, the boat runs aground. For we read in verse 4, And on the, 17th, on the seventh month and the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, if you're keeping track, this is five months into the flood. This is, if you will, July 17th that the boat runs aground. The flood began, we saw in chapter 7, on February 17th. So it has now been five months for the ship to actually, the ark to actually to run aground. It will still take four more months for the waters to recede. The scripture tells us that he ran aground on the mountains of Ararat, which, are cur- which reside in uh, Turkey and Iran, Russia, and the nation of Georgia over in those areas. 
Well, eventually the water recedes to where we see, actually begin to see land, for we see in verse 5, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And so now finally we could actually see land, the peaks of the mountains, like little islands there in the midst of a, a vast ocean. Now seven and a half months into the flood, we begin to see that land is, is there. There will be a place for man to live. And we, we see that God is acting on his remembrance of Noah and he's providing a place for him and for you and I to live. Of course, this is a great demonstration of God's power, isn't it? His, his might. That he is perfectly capable to flood this world and therefore perfectly capable to send the, the flood away, to, to send the waters away. I don't know if you've ever stood upon the coast of a mighty ocean. Perhaps I trust most of you have. And there you often feel small and insignificant in comparison to the massive might of the ocean that stands before you. Well, it is not mighty to God. It is simply his handiwork and it obeys him as all creation ought to. We even saw this in the Lord Jesus Christ when he stands on the bow of a ship speaking to the wind and the wave. Peace be calm, he says. And the apostles say, even the wind and the waters obey him. Well, we shouldn't be surprised for he's the one who made the wind and the waters. And we see the great power of God. So may I tell you this morning, based on the authority of God's word, there is nothing in your life too hard for God to handle. Nothing. He has all power. And he demonstrates it over and over again. And he calls you to trust him. You have seen my power in scripture. Do you believe me to handle all your affairs? We see the great and mighty power of God as he remembers our brother Noah. Well, Noah evidently feels the boat hit the ground and he therefore begins to search for land. Verse 6, we read, he opens a window. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. Now, I don't know this for sure, but the picture I get based upon the, the text to follow is that this is not a window in the side of an ark where Noah could look out. But I think it's a window above Noah. I don't think Noah is able to look out of this boat at this time. I think that's why he's going to send these birds out to search for land because he himself cannot look for it. So the picture I have, and I may be wrong, is that, is that there's something above Noah where he'll send these birds out to go, um, to go look, look for land. I know all of our arcs have that little house on the top. I don't know if it's an outhouse or what it is, um, but they're on the top. I don't, I don't think that's there. I don't think there's that little house up there. Um, I, I don't think, I, I think there's just a covering on the ark, and Noah will eventually take that off. But now he's opening a window, and, and he begins to send out the animals, uh, the birds, excuse me. We see him begin to do so with a raven in verse 7. And he sent forth a raven, and it went to and fro until the waters dried up from the earth. Well, raven's a very rugged bird. It's a scavenger. Um, you'll find ravens anywhere on this earth. Um, I, we were, I mentioned backpacking or hiking uh, last, last weekend, and we saw on top of mountains ravens flying above. In fact, I've been as high as over 14,000 feet, and, and there are not many animals up there, but there's ravens up there. And so they go anywhere, and they'll, they'll feed on carrion, and so there's plenty of food I trust for them to eat. And so this bird decided not to come back to the ark. And so Noah decided, I don't know, he said, well, I'm going to send out a, a less rugged bird. We see in verse 8, he sends out this dove, which is a, a valley bird and needs a dry place to nest, from what I understand. And so he wants, eager, eagerly trying to figure out, has the water receded? So we see in verse 8, Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and, and took her and brought her uh, into the ark with him. I think this is somewhere around November, if I'm counting correctly. So we started February 17th. He's in November, and we still see that there's water upon the whole face of the earth. Uh, the dove returns. Well, a week later, he'll try again undeterred. So we read in verse 10, he waited another seven days, and he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening. And I like this, and behold, right? Behold, what, what are we going to see? Well, in her mouth, a freshly plucked olive leaf. So what does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us so. Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, right? So can you imagine the thrill that must have been, right? Because God, all God said is go in the ark, I'm flooding, right? There's never, this is how it works out at the end. And, and now Noah sees not only is there land out there, but, but the land is able to, to sustain life of some kind. There's a, a, a tree growing out there. From what I've read, and I don't know if it's true, but an olive tree can actually sprout from underwater, interesting enough. And so here we have this, this dove uh, return with news, good news, that there is life out there. And one day, hopefully, you shall get off this boat. One day you shall be able to leave this ark. Here the bird comes with this olive branch. 
Of course, this has become a symbol, hasn't it? The dove with an olive branch in her beak or in her town is a symbol of what? It's peace, right? Everybody says this is the universal symbol of peace. I'm not quite sure if that's, that's accurate. It's kind of peace, isn't it? But it's only the peace that comes after judgment. You know that. It's the peace we get after God kills everybody in the world except eight people. And, and so it's a peace that, that comes once God expresses his holiness. And it seems like this, this picture has been stolen from us by, by the pacifists and the, and the, the West Coast hippies, right? Um, they think, well, yeah, we just want no, we just want no war. We don't want, we don't want, we just want peace. And I love peace and God loves peace. In fact, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. But you know how Jesus is going to establish his, his peace, his everlasting peace. Well, the Bible tells us he's going to come on a war horse with a robe dipped in blood and a sword out of his mouth and an army of angels on his back and do war against all those who refuse to receive the grace that he offers them. And he will undo all of his enemies. And then after that, what happens? Well, after that, we get peace. Eternal peace, as God has promised us. And so this, this dove is, in some sense, I guess, a picture of peace that follows the judgment of God. Well, Noah wants to send this bird out one more time, for we read in verse 12, Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore, which I trust was a good sign to him. Verse 13, perhaps the most encouraging verse to Noah. In the 600 year, in the first, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of, uh, of the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the face of the earth. Right? So happy new year. January 1st, the Bible says the waters were gone. The flood is over. It's been 10 and a half months and, and now, now it's finally over. The water's gone. 10 and a half months on that boat. You, you, you find it interesting there's no children on this boat? I mean, Noah's 600 years old. He has three sons. They have wives. We know the Bible tells us they're very fruitful. But Noah's 600. still not a granddad. Still, still no grandkids. I, I'm speculating here, but I just simply think that's God's kindness. You ever taken a long trip with kids? Right? 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 The first question they ask is, you know, right? Are we there yet? My kids ask that on the way to church. We live three miles away. When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? Right? I mean, these, these, guys will be, these guys will repopulate the earth, but not until the flood is over. Praise God. He is a kind and good God, is he not? And so the waters have dried up from the earth. We read on in verse 13. It wants to reiterate this. You see the second half of that verse. And Noah removed the covering of the ark. So I think this is the roof of the ark that he's take, taken off the ark and what? And looked. So this is the picture I have as Noah's finally for the first time looking to see what he can find. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. The flood's gone. He looks. I trust that was a, somewhat of a troubling sight whether there's no house out there or Sign of civilization, not a person, not an animal, not a bird in the sky. But what he saw was, was land. God had, had made land. First time Noah really understands, God remembered me. I don't, I don't know if you ever feel forgotten by God. Perhaps you've, you've come to those times in your life. And you've cried out and, and it seems like there was no answer. And you've read his word and it did not seem as if he was speaking to you. And you had trials and there was no help and there was pain, but no support. There was confusion, but no direction. There was sadness, but no joy. There were, there were cries for God and nothing in return. And perhaps you've wondered, God, have you forgotten me? Do you even care? Well, I can tell you this morning, friend, based upon God's word, he remembers you. He cares more than you will ever know. God remembers his own. I trust Noah felt forgotten by God. Forty days after it rained, surely God would speak. The boat runs aground five months into this flood. Surely God would speak. The dove has left eight months into it. Surely God would speak. He looks out and sees dry ground. Surely God would speak, but he was silent. But that does not mean he was forgotten. God remembers his own. He remembered Noah. In fact, it seems to me when I read scripture, God works this way quite often. He speaks to us. He calls us. And then he goes quiet for a period. 
Think of David, who was anointed as king and then for years had to live as a fugitive in caves in the wilderness. I think of Joseph, who was spoken to by God through dreams and then there languished with, with unbearable silence for years and years in prison and enslavement. But the reality is, is that God continues to remember them. He will not abandon us. The Bible tells us in the book of uh, Isaiah that Israel, the nation, felt forgotten by God. They asked through the prophet, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. But God has come and answered saying, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these will forget, but I will not forget you. God remembers his own. And no matter what trial comes upon you, perhaps you endure today or tomorrow or in the weeks and years to come, know this, if you are his, he will never forget you. He will remember you. It does not mean, of course, we don't face trials or hardships. God does allow stresses in our life. One such uh, sister of ours encountered such great stress when she was dying in her early 40s, Frances Havergale, the great hymn writer. In fact, on the last day of her life, there was no healing for her. She asked a friend to read from Isaiah chapter 42. When her friend got to verse 6, she read, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee. At this, Francis stopped her friend from reading, and she whispered in a weak voice saying, Called, held, kept. I could go home on that. And she did later that day as she went on to be with her God resting in God's faithful remembrance of her. In fact, she left us a hymn and many hymns, one being like a river glorious where she wrote, every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the son of love. We may trust him fully for us, all for us to do. They who trust him wholly find him wholly true. And God remembers us. He has not forgotten us, though he will test us. As we see secondly that God tests our faith. You notice in verse 13, as we've already considered that this is January 1st, and the Bible tells us not once but twice in this verse that the earth was completely dry. The flood is over. So January 1, the flood is over. In light of that, verse 14 is very interesting to me when we read in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And so you flash forward to February 27th now, And it's repeated that the earth was dry. So January 1, the earth is dry. We're told twice, behold, the whole face of the ground was dry. And then we go almost uh, almost two months forward, and we're told once again that the earth was dry. Now, the question is, where's Noah for those two months? Well, he's in the ark. He's still in the ark. I mean, he's removed the covering. He's seen all that the earth was dry. You think, okay, what are you going to do? The earth is dry. You can see it. Well, you get off the boat, don't you? You get off the ark. What, what is he waiting for? Why has he not disembarked? Well, I think he's waiting for God to speak. God told him in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1, go aboard the ark. And now he's there. And I think he's waiting for the orders to uh, of dismissal. I think he's going to man his boast, uh, post until God tells him not to. This is what Noah does. God told him one day to build an ark. He goes silent for 120 years. What does Noah do? He just builds an ark for 120 years. Finally, God speaks and says, okay, go above the, on the board of the ark. And Noah goes on the ark. And then God goes silent again. And what does Noah do? He just obeys what God had told him, the, following the commands in which God had told him to do. And he doesn't care, I think, that the flood is gone. God told him to get on the boat. And he is going to stay on the boat until he receives new orders. Now, do you think he wanted off the boat? <laughs> yeah, I think he probably did. Uh, you ever see those cruise ships that lose power for like three days? <laughs> and uh, they get off the boat and they're all frazzled and em- emaciated and, and, and they look like they've been in war and they say, oh, it's the worst experience of my life, right? The midnight buffet was closed and uh, the duty-free shop wouldn't take my credit card and a uh, casino was canceled and, and there was no AC and they get off the boat kissing the ground and I can't believe I made it through that. Right, well, Noah had a little worse. Right, a year in a floating zoo with your in-laws. Um, <laughs> there was a little bit of trouble. He wanted off the boat. He wants a shower. He wants a hot meal. You see that he's eager. He's sending out these bird after bird after bird. There's dry land out there. I'm ready to go, God. But he obeys. 
In fact, I appreciate what Kent Hughes says when he wrote, think of it, a year-long lock-in with Mrs. Noah, his three sons and three wives, and a complete menagerie of the world's animals, birds, and crawlers. Years of stable muck bilgewater, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law, and seasickness. There must have been times when Noah wished they would hit an iceberg. I think he would have wanted off. I think you and I, perhaps, once that dove comes back with a twig, we're jumping off right at that point, right? We're breaking down the sides. We're getting off the boat, but not with Noah. He waits. I think God's testing him. I think God wants to see if he will obey. Rains for 40 days. It stops. God is silent. Noah waits. Five months later, the ark hits the mountain. God is silent. Noah waits. Seven months Mountains begin to peek out of the water, but God is silent, and Noah waits. Ten months, the dove flies away to a nest. God is silent. Noah waits. A year has passed. He sees the ground. The covering's off, but God is silent, and Noah waits. And it's not till over a year, one year and ten days to be exact, that we come to verse 15. Then God said to Noah. Right? By the way, that's the entire verse. Interesting verse, isn't it? Then God said to Noah. There's just significance in the fact that finally God has spoken to him. And what does he say? He says in verse 16, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So he commands them to, to come off that, that ark, to disembark. Right, and we. I hope you see this again. This is a picture of renewal, recreation, and that you have Noah being the new Adam, if you will, and and all these animals, and the command once again to be fruitful and multiply, because God hasn't given up on creation. God will never give up on creation. I I trust that one day, because of what Christ has done, I shall inherit a resurrected body. The the great hope for the Christian is not the immortality of the soul, but is the resurrection of the body, as Christ has shown us, and we shall live a physical life upon a new earth. And I trust there'll be mountains and streams and birds and animals and food and God and his people. And we shall live there forever because God will not let sin destroy his creation. And so he's beginning anew, keeping his commitment. And he commands Noah and all the animals aboard to come off that ark. We see once again, Noah obeys for we read in verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by the families of the ark. He comes off that ark with all life behind him. He passes that test. I do know that though God will not forget you, he will test you. He will test you. Perhaps you're encountering that test even now. What God ultimately always tests is your faith. Do you trust him? When, when all around you there's perhaps evidence, at least to your eyes, that he's not trustworthy. He wants to know in the midst of those trials, do you trust him? In fact, the Bible says in James chapter 1 and verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effects that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Or take, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he will test you. He will test all of us. He wants to know, will we wait on him? Are we patient? Will we lean upon him? I think at times we act like children. We want what we want right now. We want our prayers answered now. We want our problems solved now. We want things fixed now. But I wonder if there's a life principle here in Genesis 8 where we see that destruction comes quickly, but recovery and redemption comes slowly. You see, it didn't take long to flood the world, but it did take a while for the flood to to be removed. It doesn't take long to destroy your marriage or your finances or your body, but recovery and redemption takes a while. And in the midst of that, while God works in us, he wonders, I think, do we test, do we trust him as he tests us? And so I ask you, has God done enough in your life and through scripture and history to prove to you that he is trustworthy? Is Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead enough for you to trust him? I think God wants to know that. I think God wants to know, will you continue to be patient with hope? And as you wait, you faithfully obey what he has done. I think sometimes we rush ahead and say, okay, God, I'm going to do this. And you come in and you bless me what I'm going to do. And I'm not sure it works that way 
I think what God says, wait a second, you actually do what I tell you to do and then you'll get the blessing. Don't worry so much about the blessing. Don't go run around seeking God's blessing. Run around seeking to obey God and to have faith in him. And you know what God will do for you? He will bless you, as we'll see in a moment. He will come and pour out his goodness upon you. We, I think, would do well to wake up every morning and say, God, I'm yours. I want to obey you today. I want to follow you. I trust you no matter what you bring upon me. And we see, lastly, that not only does God remember his own and, and does not, not only God test our faith, but he blesses his worshipers. As we see Noah get off that ark, the ark door now it finally opened, Noah emerging with his family on his side and all the animals of the world and his back. He looks around at this uninhabited world and begins to take those first steps upon that earth. And what a day that must have been. And can you imagine knowing that the, the entire success of the human race kind of depends upon you and your family? Uh, there's a lot going on in his heart, I think. Now, what, what, what would you have done once you got off that boat? I think, in fact, what, what you probably do in that day probably says a lot about your priorities and your commitments. I mean, there's a lot to do, isn't there? You, Look for fresh water, you can build shelter, start a fire, go look for food. Maybe you just want to take a walk alone, right? Um, maybe you just want to sit and think. And what do you do when you get off the ark? You're Noah, just put yourself in that place, you step off. I think what you do says a lot about your commitment. When we see what Noah does, he gets down on his knees and begins to collect rocks and begins to build an altar so he can worship God. Look in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. You see, he wants to worship. He's not going to tend to his family. He's not going to tend to the world. He's not going to tend to his own needs. He wants to worship God. This boat builder is now an altar builder. And I wonder if his family just kind of stood around and watched this man collect these rocks and begin to pile them in this massive heap. And then on top of those rocks, he would need to get a, 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 a number of wood in order to burn for these burnt offerings he's about to offer. Perhaps he's chopping and breaking about, apart the ark, a, a ready source of wood that he may put on top of this altar. And there he be, he's going to to worship God. See, it's no surprise that God remembers us, but I think what the surprise is, is that Noah remembered God. And he gets off that boat and says, okay, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to worship God. I need to worship. I don't care about food and fresh water right now. I don't care about shelter or, or leisure or comfort. I want to worship him. And so he begins to do so. We see through these sacrifices, according to verse, as we read on verse 20, he says, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean burn and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And so he's taking all these animals and he's going to begin to sacrifice them. I, I trust this would take a long time. Uh, you see, the Bible's clear he takes some of every clean animal. Remember that there were seven of, of the clean animals that were aboard the ark, and he begins to, to sacrifice them and to, to offer them to God. He's grabbing animal after animal and slicing its throat and taking that, that carcass and throwing it upon a massive fire. These are burnt offerings. It's, it's entirely consumed. And just one after another after another. I wonder if, wonder if his sons and his daughter-in-laws and his wife just kind of stood back and watched the old man as, as he's just covered in blood by this time. He's got blood dripping down his arms, off his elbows. This beautiful, this washed, this clean, this purified world is now covered with stagnant, deep, sticky, vile blood. And so I think the question is, what is he doing? Why, why is he doing this? Some have suggested that Noah is offering his thanks to God. He's, he's thanking him through, through these offerings, thanking that he was spared. Maybe. Uh, others suggest that, that he, this was an act of consecration to God, a, a devotion to him. I mentioned these burnt animals were entirely consumed. A lot of times the offerings or the sacrifices, you would actually take a lot of it home and eat it. But, but not a burnt offering, as we see here in verse 20. It's all given to God. And maybe he's saying, take my life, Lord, as we sung this morning. Maybe it's an act of commitment and consecration to God. Maybe. But you know what I think ultimately is happening here? Is I don't think Noah is confessing his thanks, thankfulness or, or even his devotion to God. I think he's confessing his sin. See, the burnt offerings were, were always given for atonement. Atonement for what? Sin. And I think Noah walks off this boat and sees a world where there is no one else. And he thinks, perhaps 
Perhaps right there it hits him. I should have been washed away. I should have been overcome by the wrath of God. Because I too am a sinful man. I wonder if he thought the only difference between me and everyone else upon this world was that I received grace. That I received, as we saw in Genesis 6, favor from God. And I wonder if he thought I should have drowned, my wife should have drowned, my sons and their wives should have drowned. You see, Noah doesn't get off the boat and and look around and think, aren't I great? He doesn't look at his kids and say, kids, aren't you glad I'm your daddy? He doesn't look at his wife and say, wow, you did well to marry me. He is overcome with his own sin. He is overcome by the grace of God and somehow Christians get this stupid folly in our head that we think we're better than the world. And we look down our nose at them because they may dress differently than us or they may have these perverted acts or we think that they're destroying our country and we have this judgmental, critical attitude. And I tell you, the only reason you're not like them is you got grace. It is the mercy of God that he has saved you. I think Noah understood that. I think he is seeking God's forgiveness. I appreciate what Pastor Mark Driscoll said when he preached this text. Noah would have named his sin and slit the throat of the animal. He would have been there for a good long while, perhaps a whole day. One animal after another, and then the birds. Noah's family is standing around him watching, and there's, there's, here's what Noah's doing. I lust, he says. I covet. I'm greedy. I have false gods. I've ignored God. I've mocked his grace. I've slandered people. I've lied. And he slits throat after throat after throat after throat after throat and spends his first day off the boat confessing his sins, slaughtering animals. And what we want to do is we want to kind of turn away from that because that's a little gory and that's a little too intense. We don't want to think about that, but the Bible is constantly putting this in front of us so that we would see the wickedness of our sin and we would see the cost that our sin will require if we are to be forgiven of it. We will see what God's mercy and his grace will cost us. And so here's Noah saying, I'm a sinner, God. I'm a sinner. Will you forgive me? And what does God think of this? Well, look in verse 21. And when the Lord smelled, do you see this? The, the pleasing aroma. God was pleased. God looked down upon Noah and was pleased with him, which I think is massively significant in light of what God previously saw when he looked upon the earth. Look back in chapter 6 and verse 6. The Bible says, as God looks upon the earth, And the Lord was, what, sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart? You see, God looks upon the earth and what does he see? He sees rebellion and people are ignoring him and doing everything that he tells them not to do and going their own way and pay him no mind. And he's thinking, wait a second, I made you and I made this earth and I keep you alive today and I I bless you over and over and again in thousands of ways every day and all you do is go away from me and curse me and rebel me, rebel against me and you sin against me. And you know what? I'm just sorry I made you all. I wish I didn't do it. The Bible puts this picture of God who is heartbroken. He looks upon man and says, I'm sorry this happened. It would be better if you all never existed. And then we get to chapter 8 and verse 21. And God looks down upon the earth. And he is pleased. Because finally one guy says, you know what, God, I'm a sinner. I've broken every law you've given me, and I'm just thankful for grace. And God says, that's what I've been waiting for. I just wanted some guy to say, you know what, I messed up. Thank you for grace. And the Bible says God is pleased with that. Your confession of sin pleases God. Your thankfulness for grace pleases God. In fact, it not only pleases him, but he responds to it with blessing. Note, as we read on in verse 21, when God says, the Lord said in his heart, you see what's going on? We got a picture, isn't it crazy? We have a picture of the heart of God. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
For the intentions of man's heart is evil from youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. God says, listen, no more flood. It'll never happen again. We'll see this more next time, God willing. I'll never do this again. Why? Because we've all learned our lesson. Right? Because we're all clean and holy and worshipers of God now. Because we won't make the same mistakes they made before the flood. Look what God says. He even sees it. You see this in verse, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For, even though the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. No, the, the water may have washed away the earth, but it didn't touch our hearts and all. We're still the same people before the flood as we are after. But God says, I will never curse this ground again. Because finally there was someone who said, I'm a sinner. Thank you for grace. And he worshiped God. And God blessed all of us because of it. You are being blessed by God today because of this man's worship. You see, God blesses worship. In fact, we see this very clearly in verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall, shall not cease. Right? It's getting cold outside. The leaves are changing. Right? We're moving from summer to fall. Why? Because Genesis 8.22 says God will allow this to happen. The sun rose this morning. Why? Because God said I'll allow this to happen. You have food on your table. The earth is productive last night, this morning, because this man came before God. And the first thing he did is he walked upon a world washed clean by the wrath of God. It's God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm not good and I need grace. And God blesses that. God blesses that worship. You need to hear that this morning. So as we end this morning, realize this. God is both pleased and blessed by your worship. Noah teaches this. He doesn't get off the boat and kick up his heels. He gathers his family together and worships. There are many ways to worship God. You worship him through prayer. You worship him through reading the word. You worship him through witnessing, as Pastor Glenn told us last week. You worship him by going about your day when you go to the classroom, when you go to work. I hope when you enter your cubicle or the classroom on Monday or your office, I hope all that you plan to do that day is to worship God. Let it all be an offering to God, a consecration to him. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I urge you, my brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, holy and pleasing. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so we are to worship God throughout our life. And when we do so, note that God is both pleased and he blesses. And, and, and not only throughout our life, but Noah, the picture Noah gives us is clearly of this public, corporate, congregational worship where God's people have always, from Genesis chapter 4, throughout Scripture, even to this very moment, gathered together publicly and corporately and worshipped God as one body. And we see this is what Noah is doing. And, and so I, I, I urge you, friends, when you come to this, this body every week, every Sunday, please let your heart be far from the thoughts, I hope the sermon is not too long, or I hope the music is how I like it, or I hope the temperature is comfortable. My prayer is for you to have a great and overwhelming, even a controlling desire to worship God. I must worship Him is what God wants your heart to sing. I must come and not care about any of my preference. I lay them down because it is not about me, God. It is about my opportunity to praise you for the grace in which I have received. And you know what God does when you do that? He blesses you. He is pleased with you. That's my prayer for us as a church Amazing. We can please God. We can bring him every week our sin and just give it to him. I'm sorry, Father. Forgive me. We could give him our hopes and our dreams. Will you redeem these? We could give them our worries and our concerns every Sunday. We could come and give him our heart, our love, and our devotion. In fact, you know the one thing you won't bring on Sunday is a goat. You won't bring a bull. You won't bring a pigeon. You won't bring a lamb. We're not going to end in a moment. I'm not, you're not going to walk forward. I'm not going to hand you a knife in order that you can worship God. You're not going to shed blood this morning because the perfect lamb of God's blood has been already shed for you. 
It's not that we don't have to shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. It has already been shed for you. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so you won't die, Christian. You won't ever face the wrath of God because Christ has faced it for you. He has shed his blood for you that you might be given grace. And I understand when people read this flood narrative and it is startling and they think, oh, I don't understand how a good God could, could wash clean this world and kill every single person upon this world. And I understand that's an important question that we as Christians need to grapple with. But I'll tell you what's the more difficult question for me. is not how God could kill every single person upon this earth as they rebel against him, but how it is that the perfect son of God, who had never done anything wicked, all he did was love God and love people and was holy and compassionate and kind and generous and God would kill him for the likes of me and you. And this is what he asks in response. Your heart, your worship, He says, have I done enough to get your heart and your love and your adoration of me? Will you live for me? It is my hope that we will. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this great and glorious story of our brother. We thank you for his love for you and the great example he is to us but we thank you even more in that what you show us about yourself through this story and i I pray that for everyone some of us been christians here father well some of us been following christ for for 40 60 80 years perhaps i mean we've been at this for a long time but this is my hope father that you would impress upon our heart in a way that you have never had through your spirit and your word the great honor it is to worship you, not just in our praise, but with our life. And that you would help us to understand the great honor it is that our worship pleases you and you bless us in response to it. We thank you for that great act of grace. We thank you for grace. And so let, let me just, Father, as the pastor of this church, just confess with, my, with these people, we are sinners. We're sinners. And we have received blood-bought grace. And your terrible wrath against unrepentance will never fall upon us because of Christ. And so you help us to respond by worshiping you well. Perhaps, perhaps this afternoon we could have conversations around the lunch table. How can we worship God tonight? How can we worship him at work and in the car and when all that we do? Help us to be people who love you. Take our heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.